Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So we don't often talk about uh, Nazi history. No, we don't. It's, I mean, you might think we would more because of the internet where it's all (laughs) Nazi talk all the time. But it's one of those things that people have hashed out a lot and it's uh, uh, not something most people miss in history class. But in talking with people lately, I have discovered that some of the finer points Maybe people don't always recall. Yeah. Uh, some of the details get a little lost. Like, we know the broad stroke. Everybody knows the broad strokes. Mm-hmm. But uh particularly around, like, Hitler's rise to power and sort of the steps that happened that enabled him to basically claim that he ruled everything in Germany, those get a little fuzzy for people. Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, their knowledge of Hitler sort of begins in World War II and not all the stuff before that. Right. There's a lot of knowledge of concentration camps and the things associated with that and all of those atrocities of war, but there was a long lead up to that. Uh, Right. And we aren't even covering all of it because it's one of those figures where he has been so studied by by people that are scholars of German history and Nazi history in particular uh, that there's no way we could include every detail of his life. And there are also pieces in here that we're going to refer to that are individual incidents in history we have one or the other of us talked about doing as whole episodes before. Yeah. And I think I referenced in my notes that one of them could become a a whole episode in the future. But what we're sort of talking about is Night of the Long Knives. But what we're actually doing is a lot of stuff leading up to that and why it was an important moment. And then the Night of the Long Knives. And then the Night of the Long Knives is actually the last segment. So for just a quick context, over the course of several days in 1934, Adolf Hitler, who was at the time the Nazi Party leader and Reich Chancellor, uh, directed an action which eliminated basically all of his political enemies, as well as some personal enemies, and enabled him to declare himself Fuhrer. But first, as I said, we're going to need to talk about what preceded that series of murders that have come to be known as the Night of Long Knives. It also goes by a couple other names, and we'll talk about those. So we're going to do kind of a brief history of Hitler's rise to power. Yes. The National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazi Party, was founded in 1919 under the banner of the German Workers' Party. And one of the primary drivers for its establishment was some dissatisfaction at the terms that were set in the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War One. These terms uh, called for Germany to make reparations. Yeah, those certainly were not the only terms, but that's the big one that really caused a lot of problems uh, in terms of public opinion in Germany. And uh, the party was actually founded initially by a locksmith named Anton Drexler, but he was quickly usurped by an enthusiastic upstart, Adolf Hitler. And that change in leadership was also what brought about the name change from the German Workers' Party to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. From the moment that he took the helm of the group, Hitler started working on a plan which would be this guiding ideology of the party going forward. It was a 25-point program that included goals of abandoning the Treaty of Versailles and expanding German territory. And there was also a strong thread of anti-Semitism throughout, including the ideology that only those with German blood should have citizenship. And by that logic, quote, hence no Jew can be a countryman. 
And thanks to uh, the socialist aspects at the time, which shifted away from that, and the distrust of the German government in the 25-point program, which drew the working class, uh, the Nazi party experienced a really steady increase in membership in the early 1920s. In the fall of 1923, the group had accumulated tens of thousands of members and felt sort of so uh, confident in their their power that they thought they could wield with that membership that they mounted what became known as the Beer Hall Pooch, also called the Hitler Pooch or the Munich Pooch. Uh, that's basically an attempted coup d'etat, and that happened on November 8th and 9th. The hope on the part of the Nazi party was that their attempted coup in Bavaria, where the party was headquartered, would inspire the German army, which was really rife with frustration, to carry this momentum forward and lead to an overthrow of the government in Berlin. To that end, Hitler and other leaders, along with the Sturmbattlugen, which is also known as the Stormtroopers or the SA, and I'm going to apologize for all of my German pronunciation in this episode, I am sure it is terrible, they began at a beer hall in Munich where the government leaders were meeting with the intention to overthrow them, and then they would march on Berlin to enact a full takeover of Weimar Germany. But the plan was, in fact, a failure. So instead of culminating in a government takeover, the whole thing was shut down really quite quickly. The beginning of the coup had gone as planned. They easily suppressed the politicians that were in the beer hall. But when they moved on to their next location at the building of the Bavarian War Ministry, they were fired upon by police and a riot followed. We could, and perhaps one day we will, do a whole episode just on the beer hall, which, like, that's been on my list for a while. You and I have talked about it. But the outcome was that Adolf Hitler was arrested and charged with treason, along with nine other men, and was ultimately sentenced to five years in prison, and the Nazi party was banned. It was during his incarceration at Landsberg Jail for the Beer Hall Putsch that Hitler dictated Mein Kampf to his personal secretary, Rudolf Hess, who had also been convicted and was serving his sentence alongside Hitler. Hitler did not, however, serve his full sentence. Pretty much from the moment of his incarceration, the remnants of the Nazi party, even though that was technically outlawed, uh, they still existed in a, a form not under that name, uh, dedicated their resources and energy to pressuring the German government to release him. So he served about nine months of his sentence. After his release, Adolf Hitler set about reestablishing the Nazi party. The ban on its existence was legally lifted after Hitler appealed to the Bavarian prime minister and assured him that the group would abide by the rules of the Constitution. Hitler organized and the reinvigorated party with extreme care in the years that followed. And through deft framing of the Beer Hall Putsch, November 9th became Reich Day of mourning for the Nazis who had been killed during the riot. And it became a rallying point for the party. Germany's economic depression at the end of the 1920s really left an opening for Hitler's Nazi rhetoric to win over supporters from Germany's working class. Desperate, out-of-work Germans responded to the criticisms of the existing government that they had felt caused their troubled situation. So they were very happy to join on with the people making those criticisms, which were the Nazi Party. So elections started going to the Nazi Party starting in about 1930. In 1932, the Nazi party reached a major milestone. It became the largest party in the German parliament, although it did not hold a majority. This was a massive shift from the previous election, in which the Nazi party had only won a handful of seats in the Reichstag. 
Hitler actually ran for president that same year, but he lost to Paul von Hindenburg. Hindenburg, who was 84 at the time and not in terrific health, had won the presidency in 1925, and he had been asked to run again in 1932 because it was believed that he was the only man who could win against Adolf Hitler. But Hitler had garnered a significant following, and he established himself as a political force, even without that election win. In January of 1933, Hindenburg selected Adolf Hitler as chancellor in an effort to appease the Nazi party. Hitler began as chancellor on January 30th and immediately advised President Hindenburg that the Reichstag, which was set at a stalemate because no political party had managed to establish a majority, He suggested that the Reichstag be dissolved and that new elections be held. And a new election was called for on March 5th, 1933. Yeah, just for a little bit of context, Hindenburg thought that, you know, with a vice chancellor that was not a Nazi and some other people in prominent political positions, like surely they would be able to keep this Hitler guy in check. Nope. That didn't work out. And then the Reichstag building burned under mysterious circumstances on February 27th of 1933. Debate about the cause of the fire has actually continued right up to present day. You will hear historians discussing it and debating the various theories. But one of the most popular theories is that Josef Goebbels planned the fire with the intent to pin it on the communists. And as the Communist Party was the uh, was one of the Nazi party's legitimate rivals in the upcoming election. This plan was intend- intended to cast a shadow over that party and lose them some votes. The day after the fire, Hitler leaned on Hindenburg to deliver an emergency decree, which stated, quote, restrictions on personal liberty, on the right of free expression of opinion, including freedom of the press, on the rights of assembly and association, and violations of the privacy of postal, telegraphic, and telephonic communication and warrants for house searches, orders for confiscations, as well as restrictions on property, are also permissible beyond the legal limits otherwise prescribed. And this was framed as being, quote, for the protection of the people and the state. Hitler leveraged control over the country's politics, culture, and society. To further stack the deck in favor of a Nazi party success at the polls in the upcoming election... Hermann Göring, who had become head of police, used the brute power of his force to suppress most opposition. And the Nazis did not win an outright majority, but Hitler's next move made that a non-issue. We are coming up on the Enabling Act of 1933, but before we get to that, we will pause for a word from one of our sponsors. As part of Hitler's consolidation of power, he wanted to diminish the authority of the Reichstag, which was Weimar Germany's legislative branch, and take that authority for himself. With the votes of the supporting members of the Reichstag and many members of the Reichstag not voting due to strong-arm tactics on the part of the SA and the SS, including corralling many in what was called protective detention, It was easy to get the Enabling Act of 1933 passed on March 24th. The vote took place in the Kroll Opera House, which was being used as the seat of the Reichstag in the aftermath of the fire, which had burned down the municipal building where they normally held that business. Hitler had ordered that the Nazi party symbol, the swastika, be hung in massive scale in the temporary Reichstag chamber. 
Germany's Supreme Court accepted the passage of the Enabling Act with no challenge, uh, despite the dicey nature of the vote. And some judges seem to be unaware that anything out of the ordinary parliamentary business had even taken place. So the Enabling Act was also called the Law to Remedy the Distress of People and the Reich. And one of the key passages in that act read, quote, In addition to procedures prescribed by the Constitution, laws of the Reich may also be enacted by the government of the Reich. And this meant that Hitler, as chancellor and head of the Reich cabinet, could decree laws by himself, bypassing the approval of the Reichstag. In essence, it legally sealed his dictatorship. Not only could Hitler enact laws, he could also enter into alliances or agreements with other countries without consulting the Reichstag or having his decisions ratified by them. He could also undo existing laws of the Weimar Constitution, again, without any checks or balances. With this passage of the Enabling Act, the Reichstag had basically made itself obsolete. By 1934, it was apparent that SA Chief of Staff Ernst Röhm had turned the stormtrooper military into a mighty force. And at that point, it boasted almost three million men. And we uh, need to point out that at the same time, the German army had only 100,000 men. That was a capped number that had been outlined in the Treaty of Versailles. So the Nazi party actually had far more military might than the Weimar government. Naturally, there was some concern that the SA was far too powerful. Both President Hindenburg and Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen were troubled by the Nazi forces, but Hitler had his own concerns about Rome's military. While Hitler knew that he needed the SA as part of his support structure, the aims of the Nazi military had evolved to a point that was also problematic for Hitler's goals. The SA's leadership wanted to oust the remaining non-Nazis from the government and replace them with their own people. But Adolf Hitler, having learned from the Beer Hall Putsch that using brute force could backfire by turning people against the party, recognized that consolidating power might be better achieved by working with the elites and sort of uh, more subtly ousting them. And he had uh, the party leaders that were not part of the SA, and he also had the Schutzstaffel, which was the SS, on the same page as him. The disparity in approaches to bringing the Nazi party to ultimate power led to some friction. Hitler had also cultivated animosity among the Nazi leadership, making it clear that they should compete with one another to gain his favor. By the spring of 1934, Heinrich Himmler and Reinhard Heydrich, both leaders in the SS, and Prussian Prime Minister Ermann Göring were discussing ways to get Hitler to rid the party of Ernst Röhm. At the same time that Hindenburg and German military leaders were raising concerns that the Nazi party was becoming increasingly radicalized, Himmler, Heydrich, and Goering were starting rumors that Röhm, already seen as the leader of the most radical arm of the party, was plotting a move to take over the party. Röhm actually had no such plan. He was a friend of Hitler's, uh, but his image as an extremist made it really, really easy for those rumors to gain traction. Hitler was in danger of losing power if the vocally extreme elements of the Nazi party forced the German government's hand. But even as his party was threatened by growing external and internal pressures, he was hesitant when it came to deciding what to do about the SA. In early June, Adolf Hitler convinced Rome that the heads of the SA should take an extended leave, which began on June 8th. 
But there was still an ongoing and growing concern that the Nazi party was becoming a lawless entity, and nationalist opposition against it began to swell. It was the threat of a more organized move against the Nazi party that finally tipped the scales for Hitler. And by the end of the month, he had made a decision to get rid of all the problematic elements of the SA. He issued orders to Rome on June 28th to gather the leaders of the SA at a spa in Bad Vise, Bavaria. And next up, we're going to talk about the Night of the Long Knives specifically, which is actually used to refer to events that took place over the course of several days. But before we get into that, we're going to pause and take a little sponsor break. Two days later, the SS, led by Theodor Eicke, commandant of Dachau, captured the assembled SA leaders and moved them to Stadelheim prison in Munich. Most of the men were shot, although Rome was spared until the next day because Hitler remained indecisive for a bit about whether to execute him or not. When Rome was shot on July 1st, he allegedly uttered the words, Heil Hitler, as he died. But the executions at Stadelheim weren't the only ones carried out by the SS. Once Hitler had decided to take action, he opted to eliminate all possible threats to his leadership in the Nazi party. And to that end, the SS killed an estimated 150 to 200 people between June 30th and July 2nd. This was an execution mission that was called Operation Hummingbird and also came to be known as the Night of the Long Knives or as the Rome Purge. There are only 85 people identified by name as victims of the purge, so the exact number of people that Hitler had killed outside of any sort of legal process is difficult to discern. Since they went ahead with this without filing any paperwork on it. Yeah, we, it's very hard to track exactly how many people met their end. Uh, victims of the purge included both political enemies and, as we mentioned earlier, people with whom Hitler had personal vendettas. General Kurt von Schleicher, the man who preceded Hitler as Reich Chancellor, Schleicher's friend, Major General Kurt von Bredow, Schleicher's wife, uh, also Gustav von Kahr, who was the Bavarian chief of state, who had withheld support for the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch. So going all the way back more than a decade of sort of vendetta, he was checking off his list. That particular uh, man was hacked apart with axes in a particularly brutal killing. Uh, and former Nazi leader Gregor Strasser, who had attempted to make a deal with Schleicher when he was Reich Chancellor that would have stopped Hitler from rising to power, was also killed. So was Bernhard Stempfel, a former priest who was rumored to have damning knowledge related to the death of Jelly Raubel, which was Hitler's niece, who had allegedly committed suicide. That is another one of those stories. It could be its own episode, potentially. Uh, basically, anyone Hitler thought might challenge him or have information that could hurt him. At least one victim was killed due to a mix-up of identity. Munich music critic Willy Schmidt was murdered, but the SS had intended to target uh, an SA commander of the same name. And Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen, who had been one of the loudest voices warning of the Nazi party growing more radical, was also a target but escaped. Two of his aides, though, were not so fortunate. 
The day after Operation Hummingbird concluded, so that was July 3rd, a law was issued by the Reich cabinet at Hitler's order. And this law framed the executions as an emergency action, claiming that they needed to be carried out to protect Germany against agents who threatened the nation and thus retroactively making the mass murders legal. It's well known today that the Nazi party widely used propaganda, and the period after the Night of the Long Knives is a prime example of how false information was used to gain public favor and to damage enemies. Under the direction of Goebbels, a story of treason and treachery was spun out, which cemented the idea that people who had been killed, the people who had been killed at Hitler's order, were all dangerous enemies of the state. Additionally, Rome's homosexuality, which allegedly people had known about, became a focus of interest. So while it had been a point of relatively common knowledge, Himmler took advantage of this moment to claim that other homosexuals that Rome associated with had been a threat to national security. Himmler further leveraged this piece of propaganda to launch a series of legal actions against homosexuality, including new laws against homosexual acts and much more severe punishments for anyone who was found guilty of homosexuality. On July 13, 1934, Hitler made a speech to the Reichstag in which he justified this entire operation. And as supreme ruler of Germany, he claimed he had used his power to defend the country. And that event in 1930s Germany is often pointed to as the moment that really cemented Hitler's rise to power. And by that event, I mean the whole Night of the Long Knives, not his speech that Tracy just referenced. While the essay continued to exist as a tool of destruction after the purge, that swift and violent action against Rome and other leaders within the essay excised any thoughts of ambition for the military forces to really challenge Hitler's power or even stand as a major player in the regime's power structure. Because the purge was a strike on the SA, it also gained Hitler favor with the German army that had seen the Nazi military as a challenger. Prior to the purge, the SS had been a branch of the SA, but Hitler officially recognized them as a separate and independent entity on July 20th, 1934. This gave Himmler a position of increased power, able to confer directly with Hitler, and made it possible for the SS to take control of the police force as well as assume command of the concentration camp system. Within a couple of years, the SS had completely supplanted the previously existing German police force. Hindenburg died of lung cancer in early August 1934. And after he was gone, and leading up to that, he was infirm, so it it also meant that he was not particularly powerful. Uh, But after he had died, the last vestiges of democratic government in Germany were systematically undone. On August 19th, Hitler proclaimed himself Führer, and because of the alliance that had formed in the wake of Operation Hummingbird, the German army supported him. The Night of the Long Knives was used as a representative action on the part of the SS by Himmler. It proved, he would later say, that the SS was loyal and willing to do anything required to preserve the nation. He invoked it in the 1940s when speaking of the final solution, assuring the high-ranking members of the Nazi regime that his men were willing and able to carry out atrocities for the, quote, annihilation of the Jewish people. It's important to remember, too, that the world outside Germany had 
a really wide range of reactions to the Night of the Long Knives. Uh, British cartoonist David Lowe published a drawing of SA officers surrendering in fear before Hitler holding a smoking gun and Goering dressed as a barbarian and carrying a bloody spear. And the caption on it read, They salute with both hands now. There's also a truly chilling write-up in the Daily Mail, which wrote a lot of pro-Hitler and pro-fascist pieces during this period. And here is a quote from it. Herr Adolf Hitler, the German chancellor, has saved his country. Swiftly and with exorable severity, he has delivered Germany from men who had become a danger to the unity of the German people and to the order of the state. With lightning rapidity, he has caused them to be removed from high office, to be arrested and put to death. The names of the men who have been shot by his orders are already known. Hitler's love of Germany has triumphed over private friendships and fidelity to comrades who had stood shoulder to shoulder with him in the fight for Germany's future. It's so creepy to read that at uh, in present day, because, of course, now we know that with Hitler assuming the role of Führer, events were in motion that would lead to World War II, of course, and atrocities on an epic scale that most people do know about. Uh, well, and in, even even without that piece of the context, it's pretty horrifying for a paper to be praising a mass murder carried out in an extrajudicial yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. It came up briefly in our uh, our episode with Victoria Price, actually, that when Vincent Price was traveling, uh, I forget what the years were, early, early on and all of that. Like, e- even he, and he was very young at the time and changed his, his position pretty drastically, but he initially came away thinking, wow, that's a really organized, like, state. They're really going to fix Germany. And, of course, a lot of people thought that, and it, it, there was such a, a sort of false representation going on that uh, it's easy to see how some people were lured in by the whole thing. Yes, especially before the murder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you hear about all of that, like someone going, oh, over the last two days I killed all of my enemies. And you go, that seems like a really... Smart, good move. Like, I don't know how you say that. But. Well, no, and it also reads very, like, there are historical accounts of, you know, monarchs hundreds of years ago eliminating enemies and hearing such a similar story of a, a dictator doing the same thing in, a, in the modern world. To me, it's very jarring. Seeming, yeah, it winds up seeming, seeming more horrifying yeah. because it, it seems like we as a as a species, should have learned to not do that. But maybe that's there, just me being optimistic. We, as a species, should have learned. Oh, I know. And it doesn't always work. I know. Do you have some listener mail? Is it happier than this? It is. It's much happier. This is uh, from our listener, Bill, and he says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Regarding the Tuskegee syphilis study episode, he says he's a huge fan. I'm going to skip that part because I always feel weird reading praise. Uh, and he says, But as a physician for over 40 years and having performed, I'd guess, 1,000 spinal taps, and as a patient when I was four years old and had a spinal tap, I can say that a spinal tap should never be horrifying. So for context, in case you don't recall, we had talked about spinal taps in that episode, and we neither of us had a particularly favorable uh, commentary on it. It's a very scary thing, I think, for a lot of people. Well, I think the the idea is frightening, and then 
we have each had some unique experiences that right. were non-delightful. Right. Not not to either of us, but to people that we know. To family yeah, members. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's cool because Bill is here to save the day and reassure people. He is. Uh, so he says, in skilled hands and with proper sedation and anesthesia, a spinal tap is not pleasant, but it should not be horrifying. There are many medical tests I would personally be terrified to have, but a spinal tap is not one of them. I know you wouldn't encourage parents not to vaccinate their children, but spinal tap phobia is also a real thing and actually leads patients and the parents of children to refuse spinal taps when hours and minutes can literally be in the balance if meningitis is suspected. I cringe when the words spinal tap are used on TV to invoke what is presented as the most awful thing that a doctor can recommend. I hope I'm not sounding like I'm lecturing you. I love your show, especially the episodes about gay people in history. We have always been marginalized or just outright ignored in school history class, so I'm excited to finally learn we have been there every step of the way, historically speaking. And of course, Bill is 100% correct. You should not not get a procedure done because you are scared of it. I think if that were the case, I would probably just stay at home in a dark room most of the time. Um, I'm not really scared of the world, but medical stuff I get twitchy about. I, I think just, most people do. I don't think there's yeah there's any... Uh, there are very few people who are like, yeah, do all the tests. Do all the poking and prodding you like. It's cool. I don't mind. Uh, but don't let that fear keep you from getting proper treatment or testing. Yeah, I have a weirdly high tolerance for pretty much everything except dental x-rays. And those I hate with a horrible passion. They're not fun. Although my dentist, which used to be your dentist when you lived here, mm-hmm. is pretty good at them. Yeah. Yeah, much less horrifying than anywhere else I've gone. Yeah, I it's they, the, it's the biting on the weird thing to get the picture. The weird thing makes me want to throw up on people. It's real gaggy. Yeah. It's gag inducing for a lot of people. But that doesn't no. mean you shouldn't have them. You need to get your dental x-rays so they know what's going on. Yes. Even if your teeth are great, you need the baseline so that you can see what's going on as, as time goes by and recognize when changes have happened that should be addressed. Sure. <laughs> It's just like keeping a regular blood test on file with your doctor. They can recognize when your numbers are changing and that maybe you need to treat them. Uh, so, yes, Bill, thank you for the reminder. We should never, ever say, blah, 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 I don't want to do that. N- nobody wants to do a lot of those things, but you still should always get, again, we said it in the Tuskegee study uh, episode, you should monitor your health. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> monitoring your regular health, health screenings. It's Following important. your doctor's advice yes. more so than... Two podcasters who yes. are not doctors. Yes. Don't Google things on the internet looking for medical advice. Go to a real doctor. That's what they're there for. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, they want to make you healthy and feel better. Mm. It's a good thing. Do that. Uh, if you want to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstoworks.com. You can also find us across the broad spectrum of social media as at Mist in History. That means uh, that we're on Twitter as Mist, at Mist in History. We're at facebook.com slash Mist in History, Mist in History.tumblr.com, Pinterest.com slash Mist in History, and on Instagram as at Mist in History. Uh, if you would like to go searching for a little more information about what we talked about today or really anything that might delight or interest you, you can go to howstuffworks.com. Type in whatever you're interested in in the search bar. We'll get a wealth of information to keep you occupied, entertained, and informed. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, where we have every episode of the show that has ever existed, far before Tracy and I were ever involved, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on, which will include our sources and additional goodies when when they're required or, uh, or make sense to include. Those are now part of the show page, so you don't have to go to two places. Uh, so come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.